It's Tuesday, September 29th. I'm Stephen Fee, and this is The Pen Pod, a podcast from Pen America. On today's edition, Kay Ming Chang, who today is out with her debut novel, Bestiary, a cross-generational narrative that tracks three generations of Taiwanese-American women. She joins our Gina Chung to talk about her new book, Myth-Making, Truth and Lies, Queer Identities and Coming of Age, and then Authors Rally Against Disinformation. I'm Stephen Fee. All that coming up on The Pen Pod. Today, Kay Ming Chang's first novel, Bestiary, hits virtual bookshelves. She's a National Book Foundation 5 Under 35 honoree. Arjuna Chung has our Pen Pod conversation. Author Kay Ming Chang is a Kundiman Fellow and Lambda Literary Award finalist. Her poems have been anthologized in Ink Knows No Borders, Best New Poets 2018, Bettering American Poetry Volume 3, and the 2019 Pushcart Prize Anthology. She has received fellowships or scholarships from Tin House, the Mendocino Coast Writers Conference, Lambda Literary, and Kearney Street Workshop. She joins us today to talk about her debut novel, Bestiary. Thank you so much for joining us on the Pen Pod, Kaming. Yeah, no, thank you so much. I'm so honored. Yeah, and I'm, I'm so excited about this book and to, just to talk to you about it. Um, and one of the things I really just enjoyed reading about um, and taking in from the book was the fact that it kind of takes place from these three sort of different perspectives, which represent right. three generations of the Taiwanese-American family. That's at the heart of the book. There's um, a daughter, a mother, and a grandmother. And I'd love to hear from you. Why did you feel it was important to write the story across these three generations of women? And was there one POV or another that felt easier or more fluid to write for you? Yeah, thank you. What a wonderful question. Yeah, I... I think the reason why I kind of knew instinctually that there would be multiple generations is, I guess, one of the questions that haunts the book is about intergenerational trauma um, and what does it mean to kind of intervene in your own lineage or revise it in some way, if that's even possible, Mm -hmm. um, and what is kind of inherited um, in this very bodily way as well. Um, And I think that's something, one of the central questions that the daughter um, is very curious about as well, like whether or not she's capable of kind of intervening in her lineage um, and kind of rewriting her own history. Um, And I also think like I wanted the three generations to be a little bit unconventional in that they're, they're not as distinct. Um, They're, they're kind of fluid and porous with each other in the voices and the vocabulary and the language that they use. Um, and so it's really interesting in this idea of like, oh, these aren't necessarily three very distinct generations. I mean, obviously they they are literally <laughs> different generations, but um, mm-hmm. that they also there's a kind of porousness um, and this feeling of like accumulation that they carry so much of each other um, rather than this kind of like, I don't know, more conventional idea of individuality and like, oh, that each generation represents some kind of brand new break um, or something like that. Um, and I think of in terms of which POV what felt the most fluid, I think the mother's voice is something that felt so immediate to me um, and really, really urgent. Um, and I think part of that is just she's a lot more action oriented, I think, than maybe the daughter. Um, and yeah, her voice just had just like contained a sense of like movement and urgency, um, almost as if I was being like swept in an undercurrent. Mm, Yeah, I definitely got that sense um, throughout the book and particularly um, in the chapters that are kind of helmed by the mother character. Um, Mm. 
there are just so many characters throughout that I really gravitated to, um, especially, you know, we have to talk about Ben, um, <laughs> who I'm obsessed with. Um, so the oh, book is yeah. also, yeah, she, she's so great. Um, and the book is also um, obviously a queer coming of age story right. as it details um, the daughter's feelings for um, Ben, who's a neighborhood girl that she becomes friends with and, you know, mm-hmm. kind of develops this really interesting relationship with. And there were so many details about the relationship and about the character that I really loved, especially this line that I like underlined and highlighted <laughs> and committed to memory, um, which, which was um, our teacher told us that grammar was the God of language, but Ben was her own deity. So what was it like to write a character like Ben, especially in relation to the other women and girls in the book who yeah. um, they all kind of defy the rules and hierarchies that they are expected to follow, but um, maybe they do it sometimes in more subtler ways where it seems like with Ben, she's just like, I'm not even going to try and subvert these yeah. rules. I'm, I'm writing my own entirely. Yeah. No, I love that so much. I love, I have so much affection and love for Ben. And I, I think you're really right in that she is so kind of subversive and playful, Um, And I was, I guess I was thinking too about like archetypes of like the trickster God and the ways in which I think Ben herself is kind of like a trickster God, Mm -hmm. Um, a little bit supernatural, a little bit strange, (laughs) well, maybe very strange Um, and just like kind of so willing. Like I think if the, if the daughter is struggling so much with this idea of like passivity and intervention, I think Ben is someone who's very much like. I'm going to intervene. I'm going to tell you what to do. Like, this isn't even my family, but I'm going to show you. Like, here's, like, let's try this. Let's do this. And someone who I think is um, really playful with things like authority. Um, and like you said, like, completely re- willing to kind of reinvent her own language. Um, and it's not even really a question for her whether or not that's even possible. It just kind of is embodied <laughs> in the very way that she exists. Um yeah, and I love that you highlighted that line too about language because I think from the very moment like when she says her name is Ben and everyone's like confused and it's a boy's name and like what is mm-hmm. it short for, there is already a kind of like defiance um, as this like butch girl of like inventing her own language and just being entirely, I think, shameless in a lot of ways too, which I, I find really beautiful. Yeah. And I, and going back to kind of what you said earlier about um, intergenerational trauma and kind of confronting that um, with the characters in the book, um, it kind of seems like, you know, a lot of times when we talk about intergenerational trauma, a lot of that inheritance is also shame, right? And then Mm. with the character of Ben, there's just this, you know, as you said, um, complete reinvention of the self that um, I just responded so much to Mm. as a reader. Um, which I, I feel like that's a really good segue into my next question for you, which was um, sort of centered around this idea of myths and myth making, mm. uh, which is so uh, prevalent throughout, throughout the book and that I just absolutely loved. And there's another line in the book that I um, just really enjoyed, which, in which the daughter says, we didn't blame our mother for her lies. We loved them into littler truths. And throughout the book, many of the characters um, a lot of, and a lot of the voice throughout the different sections of the book, too, uh, they have a really fascinating and kind of multifaceted relationship to, you know, the notion of mm. truth, in quotes, um, and to myth-making. <laughs> um, so I'd love to know what it is about myths, you know, both personal or sociocultural myths that interests you as a writer. Yeah, I love that question so much. And I can definitely, like, endlessly talk about myth because it's so kind of contradictory to me in a lot of ways because so much about of myth and and legends or folk tales or fairy tales that oftentimes there's a really there's a quote unquote really clear moral that's embedded within them that there's a sense of like 
this story is supposed to kind of transmit to you our, you know, society's idea of what a good woman is or what a good mother is or or how you should behave. And so there is that kind of, um, yeah, there's that kind of instructive meaning attached to it, which feels like it's very much like a tool of how we enforce our ideas of morality and 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 gender roles and things like that. And then on the other hand, there's so much that's inexplicable in myth. There's so much magic and strangeness, and it doesn't conform to conventional plot. Oftentimes, you know, things turning into animals or pumpkins. And and so at the same time that I felt like, oh, wow, I, I think that these stories are attempt, attempting to kind of impart a moral. At the same time, there's so much room within them for like subversive potential um, and, and possibility um, and inexplicability. And I just, I thought that contrast is really interesting. Um, and so because myth is so tied to, yeah, morality and messages and things like that, like playing with them and kind of subverting them for me became a way of kind of redefining the possibilities of the world as well, for the world of the characters, my own world. Um, and so it felt like extra powerful um, to play with these stories in particular. Um, and I also think like in the book too, like these myths oftentimes have these, or, or these quote unquote lies, have these truths embedded in them, but they're very much like, you know, like told slant and um, are kind of, I don't know, they kind of almost like they, they evolve um, from generation to generation, but there's, there are all those like little kernels that I think the daughter herself is trying to kind of digest and parse through and understand how it's like rooted within her own body. And it's not just this kind of abstract thing that these myths are deeply embodied. Mm, yeah, yeah, I, I, I really like that idea of kind of taking the notion of like myths as, you know, being these like little package lessons, and then mm-hmm. kind of turning that on its head, but still using a lot of what we find powerful about myths mm. to, to explore and sort of subvert those as well. Um, and then shifting gears a little bit. So in addition to being an incredibly accomplished fiction writer, you're also a poet. And I'd love to know um, if you find that the process of writing poetry is at all different for you than the process of writing fiction, because there's so many um, lines throughout the novel mm. and in your short fiction, too, that just feel like, you know, if the um, the ways in which you describe certain mm. images or um, feelings, they feel kind of like um, really visceral in the way that poetry can be. So I'd love mm. to kind of hear about um, your approach to to writing those different forms. Yeah, thank you so much. It's I think it's really beautiful that you see kind of threads of, of poetry in the book as well. Um, I think for me, I, I don't know if the process is necessarily different, but definitely like no matter which I'm writing in, poetry or prose, I feel this idea to break out of it. So whenever I'm I'm writing poetry and I'm writing verse, sometimes I'm like, oh, I just really want to like use some sentences and be really dense on the page. And then when I'm writing prose, sometimes I'm like, oh, I want to use line breaks. And so I don't know, there's a kind of restlessness that whatever uh-huh. I'm doing, I just like, I feel, I yeah, I really want to just... Um, flee in the other direction Um, so I think that's where some of the cross-pollination comes from and then another thing is I think that like both for me are about like accumulation um, rather than like you know progressing in a way or thinking about plot um, sometimes it's just like about starting with language and accumulating language for a really long time and letting it kind of accrue on the page Um, and then like thinking about the shape of it much much later (laughs) yeah Mm, yeah yeah um 
That's so interesting. Um, and speaking about, you know, the ways in which like language can kind of sort of change or take shape on the page. I really love that mm. idea of sort of letting it accumulate on the page before kind of mm. figuring out um, how to like kind of shape or refine it. Um, mm. So full disclosure for our listeners, I've taken two workshops with you. <laughs> um, and I can attest that in addition to being uh, a you know, magnificent writer, you're also just an excellent, such a generous writing instructor. Um, yeah, your writing prompts you. alone are I find so interesting and generative. And in your classes that I've taken with you, we've talked a lot about different um, sort of writers writing in you know traditions of both poetry and fiction and kind of hybrid forms. Um, so I'd love to know what other books or works of art were you immersed in or inspired by or thinking about while you were writing the novel? Yeah, I mean, first I want to say it's such a joy and an honor <laughs> to read your pieces that you generate from the prompts. Um, <laughs> oh, I, love what, I love seeing what directions you go in. It's always so thrilling for me. Um, but yeah, in terms of other books, um, definitely things like Revenge of the Mooncake Vixen by Marilyn Chin, um, which I was like, oh, I'm, I know who's going in my acknowledgments. Marilyn <laughs> 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 Chin, like, put her name down. Um, writers like Helen Oyeyemi, What Is Not Yours Is Not Yours. Um, mm-hmm. And also, like, the title of that book, I remember being really shocked because there's, like, a phrase that was passed down from my grandmother to my mother to me, which is, um, that means what is not yours is not yours <laughs> um, in in Chinese and Taiwanese. And I was so shocked. I was like, oh, my God, how does Helen know? Like, <laughs> know that this is like this intergenerational phrase that I'm haunted by. Um, so the title itself is like an inspiration for me. But um, yeah, and definitely writers like Maxine Hong Kingston, um, Jessica Hagedorn's books to like The Gangster oh. of Love and Dog Eaters. I think so experimental and just wild. Like, I think... She's so formally innovative. Um, and yeah, and books like Justin Torres' We the Animals as well. I'm thinking of like queer coming of age. Um, of course, there's Jenny Zhang, <laughs> Sour Heart. Um, we, we love some scatological, <laughs> scatological language, um, <laughs> bodily fluids. Um, yeah, and I think also in terms of other like art forms, um, there were some images in film that I was really haunted by. Like um, there's, a film called A Brighter Summer Day. Um, and that movie, like a lot of the landscape um, was really haunting to me because it it took place in an era of Taiwan that, you know, my mother grew up in and I'd heard her describe it and to kind of see it so viscerally was really kind of haunting to me. I was like, wow, this feels like it's kind of plucked out of myth, but um, it, it's there and it's physical and embodied. Um, yeah, so... So yeah, those are the those are like my main things that um, I was really immersed in. Wow, yeah. Um, I know you can't see me right now because it's a podcast, but I'm like doing like invisible snaps and like nodding very vigorously <laughs> to everything that you're saying. Um, yeah, that's an amazing yeah. list. Um, and and lastly, I'd love to know uh, what are you reading now in this you know kind of extended period of lockdown and um you know we're all kind of sheltering in yeah. place so um you know are there specific books or texts that you're excited by in this moment yeah I just started a couple new things um I started a book um well I started Paradise by Toni Morrison um which I I'm already like within the first few pages I'm already like my like just the language that she uses my mind is just like continually blown and blown and I'm just like I probably need to like read a page a day because at this point I'm going to like, <laughs> like just um, run around um, like screaming at the top of my lungs about just like how brilliant <laughs> the language is. So I was like, I yes. need to like 
pace myself and, and take a breath. Um, and I'm also reading like a lot of books that I loved when I was like 11 or 12. Like I decided to reread the whole Twilight Saga for some reason. Like I just, um, I was like, I really want to go back to that like really angsty, dramatic period of my life and like um, delve into that whole psyche. Um, and then I also just finished reading a book called Water Ghosts um, by, oh, I, it was actually reread um, by Shauna Young Ryan, which is. Um, also so brilliant and reads to me like prose poetry. Mm. I love that. So uh, Twilight, Toni Morrison, and Watergirls. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's kind of eclectic, yeah. <laughs> um, I love that so much. Well, thank you so much for being on the pen pod with us, K-Ming. Oh, no, thank you so much. And for your thoughtful and generous questions. Um, yeah, I'm so thrilled. <laughs> Finally, today, as we head into the last stretch of the presidential campaign, PEN America is working hard to help you know what to expect this election season, and in particular, how to protect yourself from election disinformation. As part of that effort, today we're out with a new video from some of your favorite authors about how you can spot, check, and stop the spread of disinformation. Take a listen and see if you can recognize some of the voices. Since the pandemic, we've relied even more on social media. And more than half of us turn to our devices for news. That means we've all become publishers. Amplifiers. Spreaders of information. And with that comes a responsibility because words matter. That's why it's up to you to read between the lines. Seek the truth. Question the credibility of what you see. Challenge your confirmation bias. Once you spot it, check it. Punch a story into Google alongside the terms true or false. To help you distinguish fact from fiction. For instance, a person has a better chance of getting struck by lightning than committing in-person voter fraud. That's a fact. When we resist snap judgments, we are harder to fool. Like this video you're watching now. Because, let's face it, who are we? How did you find us? What is Pen America? That sounds made up. Type in Pen America and see what we're all about. That's our episode for Tuesday, September 29th. Join us Friday for the Pen Pod. You can listen to all our episodes at pen.org. Follow us at Pen America on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm Stephen Fee for Pen America. This is the Pen Pod. See you Friday. Mm-hmm.